Good evening and welcome to Horror. I'm Lee. I'm Chris. I'm Adam. I'm Jennifer. Happy New Year. Jennifer's back. Happy New Year. Yeah, Yeah, somehow we had the holidays and Jennifer still isn't sick of the sight of me enough to be desperate to get an hour and a half away from (laughs) me. I know, I totally am, but I really like Sherlock Holmes. This this is, yeah. That was the trade-off, yeah. Yeah. Um, do, Do you like this Sherlock Holmes, though? That's the question. Well, we will have to wait for that, won't we? Um, So just to let you all know, uh, what we've decided to do as we've had the month off over Christmas and New Year and we've got through a lot, Adam had the excellent idea of rather than us dashing through all the stuff that we've watched and trying to condense it and not giving it the time it's it's due, really, uh, we're going to do a bonus episode, which will either have dropped before or after this episode, or at the same time, I mean... Who knows? Um, so we're going to do that instead. So we're not going to have our usual what we've been watching. Uh, and also Sherlock Holmes, I think, deserves a lot of time because of although we were going to stick to one uh, version this evening, we do want to cover it a bit more of an overall, really. So and also mm, thank you to yeah. Claire for this fantastic idea of suggesting this. Was it Claire who suggested this? Or was it Adam? I think it was me, actually, because Claire oh. looks decidedly <laughs> confused by the whole situation. Oh, sorry. In that case, I say whenever Adam comes up with a great idea, I always give Claire the credit. <laughs> <laughs> That's because she comes up with so many great ideas. Ninety <laughs> percent of the time, it is Claire's idea. <laughs> um, yes. So we're covering the Hand of the Baskervilles this evening, uh, but obviously, as we say, Sherlock Holmes in general. Uh, this, I think, is one of the more horror stories from Sherlock Holmes. But I know that myself and Jennifer and Adam are massive fans of Sherlock Holmes uh, in all of its adaptations, really. Um, Chris, do you, is Sherlock Holmes something that you've delved into a lot or are particularly? Uh, I've seen one or two episodes when I was fairly young. I, the one that sticks out to me, which is, you know, probably not as applicable as young Sherlock Holmes, which I seem to remember being quite odd and entertaining, but I don't know how much, like how close is it to actual Sherlock Holmes? It's certainly, it's certainly not based on Conan Doyle. No, uh, yeah, okay. It's, it, it's funny you mentioned that, though, because the ha- obviously we're doing, this evening we're sort of concentrating on the Hammer uh, adaptation. Yeah. Mm. Um, I got the blu-ray the arrow blu-ray of it mm. and one of the things on there is what's what's called the many faces of Sherlock Holmes and it's narrated by Christopher Lee but I think mm. looking at it it looks like it is a part of the sort of advertising package for young Sherlock Holmes because right. there's a big load of young Sherlock Holmes clips at the start uh. before he goes off and, to, and Interesting enough, I think he's just talking film versions. Mm. Um, and also, he he is dressed like the most obvious undercover policeman you've ever seen. <laughs> he's like sort of foot, blue blue bla- blue blazer and a tweed pork pie hat. Mm. And his moustache. He, he actually looks exactly as he does in Deathline. <laughs> Wow. Almost, you know, I mean, in Deathline, it's a bowler hat, but pretty much it's the same. It's that same look of it's like, 
you've come here to arrest me, haven't you? <laughs> that is the only vibe you're giving off here. <laughs> oh, before we get into it again, but yeah, um, the... obviously there will be spoilers and swearing just to let everybody know. Um, I'm sure everybody knows the story of uh, the Hand of the Baskervilles, but nevertheless, it's always worth pointing out and there will be swears, possibly. Although I feel wrong doing it because this feels like a cultured episode. So, mm. I mean, yeah, mm. Oh, although, although I was kind of surprised that there's a little bit of swearing in it. Is there? What bit? Well, well, it's on the more mild end. The you know, the female dog is mentioned. Oh, oh right. Okay. <laughs> oh yes, yes. I just I was like, but to be honest, the whole of the start was a, I was yeah, a little but... bit thrown. It was like, oh, okay, didn't quite see this raucous party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh yeah, okay. I mean. Pretty full that's, on. That's definitely, I think it's unique mm. in that opening because okay. obviously in the in the usual version of the story, starts with Holmes and Watson. Doctor Mortimer turns up and then reads them that story. Mm. Right. Whereas okay. Hammer have obviously thought, Gone. what do we be- what do we do best? <laughs> like horror melodrama in, in mm. period costumes. So yeah, let's they go full like, on. Well, so they sort of cold open it almost, which yeah. is a very Mm. unusual way to do it you know um and it's even more unusual because then you cut back and the narrator is not like a main character technically mm. if, if well not uh, he's one of the participants but he's not holmes or watson yeah and you go into a sherlock holmes movie assuming that you would be like the stories you'd be doing it from watson's perspective or from holmes's perspective or mm. whatever and so yeah it's just weird very odd opening but also Pretty fucking spectacular. Yeah, um, it's very Hammer, isn't it? With those matte paintings in the background and like the very stark colours as well. You know, the mm. it's that very sort of washed out matte paintings with the very red credits mm. over the top and that fantastic yeah. font. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it is a lovely, lovely font. Uh, lovely font work from the Hammer Boys there. So. <laughs> And I mean, that opening sequence, I mean, basically, it's the Bullingdon Club, isn't it? Uh, that, yeah, that absolutely. <laughs> it was reminding me of society a little bit. I was like, how yeah, far is this going to go? It, it's not going to go it's, that far, but it's, well, it's pretty it, far. Enough, enough that his coked up mates aren't that sick. Yeah. That's, that's all it reminded me of, his suits in a pub. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, even, even his coked up mates are a bit, you can't. You can't just like chase a human being down with a horse, can you? You know, that's a bit much. I said to Jennifer, it's like, all right, it's all right to bring her down and abuse her in a game, Mm. but setting the dog after her, all of a sudden, they stepped over a line there. Yeah, certainly everyone's a fucking vicar. (laughs) Uh, Having having also nearly set fire to her dad. (laughs) Yeah, he, he doesn't look great after it. He looks pretty dead. Like, is, is, he, is he dead? I'm kind of assuming. I, I know that this... I'm not sure if the Arrow version... I should, have, I should have checked, but I just forgot to. But I'm not sure if the Arrow version is any different. But the, this um, is one of the few Hammer films that's cut in England still. Mm. Um, and I think there's more of him in the fire. I think they basically put him in the fire and then drag him out. Mm. Oh, no, it's not just holding him over it. Yeah. Although technically, he's been in the moat, so you know he should be fine, shouldn't he? He's down. 
<laughs> if, if anything, they're drying him off. You know, it's a kindness. Um, yeah, and I think think the other thing is there's like maybe more shots of the knife with blood on it. Mm. So, so it's only this opening bit that has bits that are sort um, of a bit. I was going to mention that later. I quite liked um, Peter Cushing or Sherlock Holmes's little flourish with the knife, the, the dagger later on when he. Oh yeah. Time to eat for the dead. Yeah. <laughs> oh, one more thing, and this. Yeah. It's not too. It's not. It's not too far off Elvis in Walk the in Walk Hard. Because yeah. <laughs> I mean that's in a weird way because. Um, Obviously, um, Peter Cushing was a real like Sherlock Holmes mm. nun. Mm. Okay. He was a proper aficionado of the books before it. Sort of, so, I mean, interesting enough, part of his costume is Peter Cushing's own stuff that he bought from home. <laughs> so I get the impression that, that, that is impressive. That he was an early Sherlock Holmes cosplayer. Yeah. <laughs> I think he just. Dressed up as Sherlock Holmes at home, I think mm. he just wasn't that much of a fan. That tweet, and I mean, he does, he does kind of resemble. Mm. He resembles the Paget, like the classic Sydney Paget illustrations. Mm. Do really resemble uh, Peter Cushion as well. It's that same sort of very gaunt face and everything else like that. Um, but yeah, I did he, I, not having seen a lot. I did think he was great in it. I mean, He's, what doesn't he do great? But you know. Oh no! I, but I think I think it's that weird thing where you can tell because of how much of a fan he is, mm. how much he's fucking enjoying it. Yeah, because he's really going for it, you know. Um, but yeah, so and also he changed bits of the dialogue and actually brought them back to the mm. original book. Mm. So nice. there's lines in there. There's actually lines in there from other Sherlock Holmes stories. It's not purely. Like the bit where he talks about his rates of pay, that I think's from mm. a, that's from a different Sherlock Holmes story and stuff, and even nailing his letters to the fireplace with the knife, yeah, which is in the books. And again, that was something mm. that Peter Cushion said, "Well, can I do that? Can I? We'll do that." So I've got my letters. And yeah, so he really like was properly sort of like, "No, let's make this the most Sherlock Holmes, most accurate, and so we'll have do it properly." Were they a bit more just like, oh, there's money in this, we'll do it, and then he perhaps made it, you know, mm. better. I think, yeah, I think he sort of, he sort of, if you like, classed it up a bit. I think mm. they were just looking for another horror property that mm. they could use. Um, yeah, how it, how late on is this in Hammers? Like they, they've done a lot. Early. Oh, is it it's, okay? It's quite early in the run because this is like mm. fifty nine. Yeah, yeah. So I couldn't I think, remember what the. I think at this point they'd done Curse of Frankenstein and Revenge of Frankenstein. They'd done Dracula the mm. year, like the same year or the year before uh, they do Dracula, and then they do this. And actually, bits of um, Baskerville Hall. It's actually the set of Baskerville Hall is actually the Dracula set redressed. Uh, okay. It's the Dra it's Dracula's castle slightly redressed. So, um, yeah, so it's very close together. But the weird thing was, is this was kind of, and again, I think this was why Peter Cushing was really into it, is that they were thinking that if this did as well as 
Frankenstein or Dracula because the trouble is that they wanted to do sequels to those, but there's no official mm. sequels. There's nothing by Bram Stoker only wrote Dracula. He didn't write like reams more. Whereas if you could get Sherlock Holmes on board, obviously you've got a lot of material to draw from that's already there. You're not having to cook stuff up. Yeah. Mm. And I'd, I'd imagine they'd have probably just cherry picked all the sort of supernaturally weird ones like the devil's foot and um, vampire. Yeah. Sussex vampire and stuff like that. Yeah. I think they would have just gone. Do we know why? It basically, this was the first sort of not, not flop, but it was the first of that run of hammer that didn't Uh, do well at the box office. mm -hmm. Um, I think mostly because it's not um, a monster. Yeah. No, no, I was going to say, right. Because, it does seem a little bit odd to me for them to choose this because this isn't ultimately supernatural and I'm assuming the other Sherlock Holmes aren't either, even though they probably build up the whole, mm-hmm. you know. There's, I mean, the whole the whole thing with, and it's quite a weird thing with Arthur Conan Doyle as he turned yeah. out. No, I've heard, well, I've heard a bit about him, not a huge amount, but yeah, well, go on. I mean, he well, I mean, he he was um, he was Scottish, studied uh, medicine at Ed, Edinburgh, and he was under a doctor called Bell, who he basically took Sherlock Holmes from. Mm-hmm. Okay. He exhibited a lot of his personality, and he was basically a, th- a forensic pathologist. He was mm-hmm. solving crimes through um, careful observation. Did of he say elementary um that i could not answer i mean holmes doesn't um in fact they say it says it twice in twice that i can remember in this yeah it's it's not as um it's not as prevalent in the books Mm, Uh, in fact the one thing that is great about uh the books is that i think there's at least three occurrences of it was around three o'clock when I was awoken by a sudden ejaculation from Holmes. And um, there you go, the time's gone. Told you. Yeah. <laughs> by the way. Uh, so, so if anything, he should have ejaculated more than the elementary because there's probably more times that occurs in the book. It's mm-hmm. a bit sort of beam me up, Scotty, sort of yeah. things where it's like, or you dirty rat, where it's things that people said possibly once and then it sort of becomes this part of it, much the same as the deer stalk as an invention of Sidney Padgett. It's not in the stories mm. per se. Mm. Um, and Holmes dresses like that for the countryside. So it works that it's sort of Hound of the Baskervilles. Mm. But, you know, he wouldn't necessarily be wandering around London in an Inverness cape and a uh, deer stalker because that was, that was country dress. Yeah. So uh, again, I wonder if it's the sort of the Hound of the Baskervilles is the most popular or the most recognised Sherlock Holmes story. Mm. And because of that, that's the image that is portrayed of Holmes. Yeah. Whereas in actual fact, yeah, I mean, they sort of got it pretty accurate with the Jeremy Brett version where I think he wears it in Hound of the Baskervilles and that's about it. Mm. Uh, Whereas the rest of the time he's about town, so he's just wearing a top hat or whatever. So it's, yeah. Yeah, You said about... um... Arthur Conan Doyle, there is a really good series that uh, Jennifer and I found on TV when we were on holiday and came back and bought the box set. Um, and it's called Houdini and Doyle. Did you ever see that, mm. Adam? Oh, yes. 
Yes, I've heard of it. Yeah, well, that sounds interesting. Because Houdini it's was based on books as well. I think it's a series uh-huh. of books. I have to dig that. Well, wasn't Houdini quite science based? Mm-hmm. Yes. A, a, yeah. this, I think I heard they used to sort of argue it right, because surprisingly, so Arthur Conan Doyle was quite into spiritualism and yeah. pseudo yeah. oh, yeah. science, and which is odd because he's made one of the most rational. Yeah. people ever to exist well i mean yeah. this this was the this was the curious thing is because i mean look and it's it's weird because he had another great character which is a character called professor challenger and that's the story of the lost world like the original mm-hmm. story where it's they basically go exploring in south america and find a plateau where dinosaurs are still in existence mm-hmm. um there's ne- I, I think there's been adaptions of it but no one's ever done because there were quite a few Professor Challenger stories, I think five in total. I mean, it wasn't like anything like the, the amount that he did Sherlock Holmes, mm. but he had this other recurring character. And um, the main reason that I'm glad it's not been adapted is because the one man who could play it is probably too old to do it now because Professor Challenger is like in his sort of 30s or 40s. Um, but when you read the book, is Brian Blessed. How did I know you were going to say that name? <laughs> yeah. It is literally impossible not to read it as Brian Blessed. Mm-hmm. He's got the huge beard. He's this bellowing sort of loony bear of a man who's like, you know, embraces people and climbing fucking mountains and stuff like that. You know, he's just this sort of huge Brian Blessed, essentially. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so it's a missed opportunity that he didn't play him sort of like a few years ago but then the weird thing is that the professor challenger books do have weird and unusual stuff in it it's almost sci-fi because you've got things like undiscovered dinosaurs there's a mysterious gas that comes out of the planet when they're doing drilling Mm. like when they're doing like a drilling project or something like that but then really unfortunately the last of the professor challenger books is like a thinly sort of veiled sort of like isn't isn't um spiritualism great and <laughs> and, and it's literally like and it's literally to the point where it's sort of like the character the debunking characters who don't like spiritualism are practically called things like mr nasty probably a pedophile <laughs> and whereas all the spiritualists are called like Mr. Braveheart and Mr. Yeah. Mr. True, absolute, unequivocal truth, and he'd uh, do the dishes if you asked him, um, or Miss, uh, Mrs. would always lend you a fiver. You know, they are irredeemably good, and everyone who is against spiritualism is clearly a vicious, party-pooping shitter who just doesn't want people to realise that the, their loved ones can talk to them. Mm. kindly through these mediums mm. for a vast sum of money yeah. um but fortunately holmes is never like condor never sort of did Doesn't, that with holmes he was yeah i th- i think in a weird way because he got quite sick of writing sherlock holmes and that's why he killed him off mm. and i wonder if it is almost because you're in this conflict with your own creation who yeah. basically is like no this is all horseshit. There's only reality. Now stop being so fucking stupid. And yeah, I think that that might have been partially why um, he sort of killed him off and was, and again, probably why he, I think he lost interest in home in writing the stories. Mm. Um, 
And so the and I also think that this is the main reason why Hound of the Baskervilles is the one mm. that everyone's like always like. So Sherlock Holmes writes Hound of the Baskervilles. That's the classic mm. one. That's the one that people could name. That's the ones people probably have seen a version of. It's the one that gets made into sort of forty odd movie versions and TV movie mm. versions and stuff like that. It's and we got basically what happened was. Is, sorry. I was going to say, we got tricked into watching one. Uh, so in 1937, there was, uh, they made one called uh, Murder at the Baskervilles, which is actually Silver Blaze. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. But the idea is he ah. Henry first. So then he gets invited right. up there for the weekend and his neighbour gets his racehorse nicked. So he deals with it while he's down. So we watched it thinking it was a Baskerville one and it isn't. It's the Silver Blaze story. But as you say, because everyone associates Baskerville, they just nicked That's the name the and reappropriated yeah. it. Mm. So. Mm. Was that an English one or a German one or something? It's English. It's very... Was it silent or... No, no, it's um, it's got sound and everything. But you said, didn't you, like Jennifer? It's one of those oh, right. very early where it feels like a stage production. It's lots oh, of locked off cameras. Yeah, and very yeah, poor acting, but more because you feel they're acting as if they're on the stage rather than a sort of yeah. Natural. So yeah, it was very um, yeah, yeah. very dated. Because was... because I, I know that there was like I think the first adaptation, the first film adaptation was a German one, and that had like five sequels that all seemed to be. So I wondered if it was part of that that they'd sort of just thought, well, we've got to keep Baskerville in. Mm. So, but um, but yeah, when um, so obviously you've got, I think, I think basically you have the you have two books and then two sets of short stories. Every everything was published uh, initially in the Strand magazine, mm. uh, like the Sherlock Holmes stories. So it was the novels serialized, and then the short stories would appear and everything else like that. And then he got so he got annoyed with Holmes and. Uh, killed him off uh, in um, the final problem, and that was 1893. Mm. So, and obviously at the time, it was like you know mass mourning. People were walking around with black armbands, and you know yeah. because of the death of this beloved fictitious character. It's um, the Houdini and Doyle show as well. Is it's set just ah. after he'd written the final mm. problem? So. All the way through, while the two of them are doing their investigations, people keep telling him what shit he is for killing off Sherlock. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. But I think, yeah. So he he was and he was kind of adamant with it. He was going to stick to his guns, and you know that that was that. Um, and then he went on. What was it? I'll, I mean, I'll give you the. the I got the backstory because there's a lot of folk myth mm -hmm. and folklore that goes into Hound of the Baskervilles from Conan Doyle and basically he in, in uh, so yeah so kills off he kills off Holmes in uh, 1893 and then in 1901 he goes on a uh, Arthur Conan Doyle goes on a golfing holiday with a friend of his uh, Bertram Fletcher Robinson <laughs> whose nickname was Bobbles <laughs> so, so he's gone on the golfing holiday with Bobbles Fletcher Robinson, um, and when it when it was raining, inevitably, um, they would just sit around the hotel, and um, Fletcher Robinson would tell Arthur Conan Doyle about local legends. 
So the first one that came up was, uh, first thing he was talking about was Black Shuck, which I'm sure you'll have heard about in terms of it's one of the big myths of the British Isles, hmm. the sort of spectral phantom black dog, hmm. um, which is sort of East Anglian and Essex folklore. And But there's, there's sort of black dog, phantom black dogs up and down the country. There's, there's you know, there's... When we were there, they said it was part of yeah. their local folk legend that there's a black dog that haunts, haunts the streets at night and uh, yeah. makes away anyone out after dark. We didn't find it. Yeah, they've got. (laughs) (laughs) They've got one. They've got ones in Scotland, and yeah, it's something that just is pretty sort of uh, centric to the British Isles for some reason. Children in the night, simple, easy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So black shuck. um, The word actually is probably from an old English word, which is scucker for fiend or devil. And the stories of Black Chuck vary sort of considerably. He's always a large black dog, but sometimes he's just a large dog and then anything up to like the size of a horse. So they really, you know, uh, he's even been portrayed. He usually has red or yellow glowing eyes. Um, Occasionally he's portrayed as a cyclops. Not sure why. Um, And he's often regarded as a harbinger of disaster or death. But then also other stories, he is a protector or a guide. He sort of protects uh, lone, uh, women walking alone at night or he guides people through stuff like the Grimpen Mire. You know, he would sort of that, you know, be people would led by following this phantom dog that doesn't. Um, but where's the quote I got? He takes the form of a huge black dog and prowls along dark lanes and lonesome field footpaths, where, although his howling makes the hearer's blood run cold, his footfalls make no sound. But such an encounter might bring you the worst of luck. It is even said that to meet him is to be warned that your death will occur before the end of the year. So you will do well to shut your eyes if you hear him howling. Shut them even if you are uncertain whether it is the dog fiend or the voice of the wind you hear. You may perhaps doubt his existence and, like other learned folks, tell us that his story is nothing but the old Scandinavian myth of the Black Hound of Odin brought to us by the Vikings. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, so that's Black Shark, and uh, that clearly tickled old uh, Conan Doyle's fantasy. Um, and then Conan Doyle went decided that he and Fletcher Robinson would co-write a really good supernatural story. Uh, Incidentally, they were also at that time reading uh, a story in the Strand magazine called Followed, which is basically, from what I gather, is basically the Hound of the Baskervilles with a big snake rather than (laughs) a a dog. But it's still the same thing of like... How do they dress the snake up? (laughs) No, I think someone just gets, what is it? They get snake attracting powder put on their boots. <laughs> so it's like, is it, even to that point, someone's just someone's looked at it and just gone, you know, if you made that a dog, you could just do it by scent. Oh fuck yeah, right. Okay. Um, so we know they'd read that, but that's that's by the by because I think half of the definitely the pleasure of Conan Doyle is how well he writes any more so than the stories that he does. So um, Conan Doyle went and stayed at Fletcher Robinson's family home. Park Hill House in uh, Ipplepen, uh, which is on the outskirts of Dartmoor. 
Fletcher Robinson then told him the story of Richard Cabell III, the squire of Brook Hall in near, nearby Buckfast, Buckfastley, also known as Dirty Dick. Cabell definitely seems to be an inspiration for Hugo Baskerville, described as a monstrously evil man. He had a reputation for immorality, debauchery, and the locals believed he'd sold his soul to the devil and murdered his wife and murdered his wife. Nice. Um, and again, some saying that he drove her to ground with a pack of hounds. Oh. <coughs> he lived to hunt, but when he eventually died, he was buried at the Holy Trinity Church in Buckfastley. And when he was buried, a, goat, a pack of phantom hounds were said to have come from the moor to bay and howl at his tomb. Mm. Following that, the ghost of Cabell was then seen regularly hunting on the moors with these hellish hounds. In an effort to lay the ghost, and this is a place you can go and visit still, in an effort to lay the ghost, a freestanding mausoleum was constructed around Cabell's grave with a large stone slab over the top of the coffin and the windows barred with iron railings. Mm-hmm. Now, this this story is such a sort of ingrained part of Buckfastley that during World War Two, you know, when they were taking all sort of ornamental railings and stuff up to add to the war effort for munitions and uh, manufacture and stuff like that, um, the locals successfully campaigned to keep the railings on this too. <laughs> during World War II. They were that adamant that, like, no, we are not letting Richard Cabell out. Um, well, they could have and him if up you and walk- set him off to fight. You know, that would have been useful. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I mean, this is the thing. You should, I mean, that would have been that would have probably been Crowley's answer to it. Mm. It would have just been like, unleash him, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's his voice, but it could be. Um, also, one of, the, one of the local stories is that if you walk 13 times around the uh, graveyard Widdershins or anticlockwise um, and then stick your finger in the keyhole of the tomb uh, he bites your finger off <laughs> no! so it's yeah yeah. that's what happened to Terry Nutkins <laughs> yeah. wasn't a bloody seal at all the liar um, and then also at Park Hill House like Fletcher Robinson's house the groom or f- uh, slash footman was Henry Harry Baskerville, who would go on to say in late years that he'd inspired the Baskerville name, claiming that both Fletcher Robinson and Conan Doyle uh, had asked him permission to use the name. And he owned a copy of the novel inscribed to Henry Baskerville from Fletcher Robinson with apologies for using the name. (laughs) Nice. But there's also another branch of the Baskerville family, the Baskervilles of Clyro Court on the English Welsh border which is now called Baskerville, Baskerville House Hotel, if you want to go and stay there. Ooh. And it, it looks the part. It really fucking does. Um, and they were also visited by Conan Doyle. Um, and again, they claimed that he asked them for use of permission, yeah. uh, permission to use the name uh, Baskerville. They said that they agreed on the understanding that no real-life connection was made between them, their house, and the locality in the book, but I mean, obviously they kind of decided they were doing a Dartmoor story anyway, like Fletcher Robinson and Conan Doyle had. <coughs> so, um, yeah, so that was going to be, so that didn't see that as a problem. Now these Baskervilles also have a phantom dog legend. Um, the story went that they had a faithful wolfhound that kept whimpering and howling to alert the family. There was a wolf at the door. 
Um, and then in exasperation with the animal's agitated display, the master of the house drove a spear through its head to get it mm. to shut up. And their crest is actually a, um, has a, a wolf or wolfhound looking head on its crest with mm. the stake, with the spear through its head and like five drops of blood. That's pretty cool. Um, which is pretty damn cool. And then, and, and obviously, within, and in terms of the story, it turns out the dog was right. There was a wolf. So, you know, it's well, well done, fella. Mm. So the ghost of this wolfhound supposedly appears whenever a member of the Baskerville family is due to die. And he appears with the spear through his head. Um, and, um, but also, this group of Baskervilles intermarried with a group called the Vong, with a family called the Vongs of nearby Herbist Hall. They also have a phantom dog fucking story <laughs> with, with them. Right? So it's, it's brilliant, this is. Um, and they also have another candidate for inspiring Hugo Baskerville. Uh, because they had well, it was Squire Thomas Vaughan, who was known as Black Vaughan, um, in the late 15th century, who, along with his wife, Eleanor the Terrible, uh, was a wicked man and scourge <laughs> of the locals. <laughs> Apparently, he used to set his dogs on anyone who annoyed him. Um, and um, he was in, he fought in the War of the Roses and switched sides halfway through um, and was beheaded at the Battle of Banbury, wow. um, where one of his black bloodhounds appeared and carried its master's head away in its jaws. And that's the story. And then, then Vaughan's ghost began terrorizing the area, overturning carts and taking the form of either a black bull or an immense fly. Um, eventually, an exorcism was ordered to settle the ghost. Twelve priests summoned the spirit, and through arduous chanting and prayer, eventually shrunk the spirit to the size of a blowfly and encased it in a snuff box. Vaughan's last entreaty was to be not buried beneath water, and then the priests immediately buried the snuff box under the bed of a brook, and Vaughan's spirit was silenced forever. Ooh, but wow. the phantom of his black dog still appears and was a member of ill omen for members of the Vaughan family. Uh, but the Vaughan family, that branch of the Vaughan family fucking died out. So obviously they saw a lot of phantom dogs in their time. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so and so basically, so they came up with this, they came up with a story and they wanted the hound and everything else like that. And then Conan Doyle was like, well, I've only got one. I've only rather than invent a character, uh, I'll just bring back Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. So 1902, the thing's published, and at that point it was published with uh, Fletcher Robinson as co-author. Oh. Uh, he was credited uh, according to Conan Doyle's wishes, but that then has been later sort of missed off, and it's now just credited solely to Conan Doyle. Interesting. <laughs> Although. Fletcher Robinson did receive royalties, a royalty payment for it and stuff like that. And actually, Conan Doyle had sold the story to the Strand for £50 per thousand words, then told them he was doing it at Sherlock Holmes and upped that to £100 per <laughs> thousand words because <laughs> he knew that, you know, people would love it. And so, yeah, so 1902, when, yeah, so when it comes out in 1902, obviously everyone has been Sherlock starved. Mm. For, well, it was 1901, it was serialised, then 1902, the book comes out. But, yeah, basically everyone was like, oh, thank fuck, more Sherlock. More <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, because 
And obviously, it's a belter of a story. Yeah, mm. I know how they feel, yeah. Nice. So I think that's why Hound is like the classic one, because it was the probably the first one that was like, it was like the sequel making more money than the original at the box office or something like that, where, you know, I think it was just like so many people by this point, you know, people are probably caught up. What is the fuss about this Sherlock Holmes? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you, when you see people mourning a fictional character, you're probably going to be like, well, maybe I'll check this out. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you've gone through, you've done, you've done the strand magazine equivalent of a Netflix box, uh, box set. And you're like, Oh, bloody, I wish I'd known about this when he was still writing. And then yeah. Hound comes out. And the interesting thing is that the Hound of the Baskervilles is meant to be an earlier case. So Conan Doyle's ah. statement on it was that, no, this was found in Watson's papers. This is yeah. pre- He still did. Home. Oh, this yeah. works. But, but it was such a success. And bring him back. <laughs> he brought him back in the empty house in 1903. And that's when he actually resurrects the character as in he falsified his own death and everything and goes on to have however many more further adventures so it's kind of the it's kind of weird because it's like it's the absolute sort of pinnacle of Sherlock mania I suppose or whatever like that or interest in it um and yeah so I think that's why it's it's sort of so like like Sherlock is so clever, he brought himself back from the dead into, <laughs> you know, yeah. to be rewritten. <laughs> like, yeah. If you can make a character that good, that you are compelled to resurrect him. Well, I mean, this is the thing, is even, even at that point, even though because uh, Conan Doyle wrote horror stories, there's, a, he's a, there's mm. a really good mummy story that he did. It's like Lot Oh, yeah. Two, four, yes. Lot 39 or something like that. I can't like remember, the- Let's say Ladybird book. It was it wasn't Ladybird. Yes, it was Ladybird. It was Ladybird. Yeah, yeah. I had that as a kid. Because <laughs> yeah, I had that one. And yeah. but that that yeah, that's that's Calendor. And um, the um, interestingly enough, those Ladybird books they had they were uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, the Mummy, mm. which was Lot whatever, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, and Hound of Baskervilles. Mm. Mm-hmm. So even in those, they considered Hound of the Baskervilles a oh, horror story. Yeah. And, it, and I mean, it's sort of, <coughs> it's definitely the one that, because whatever happens, you've still got like this folklore story in there. Mm-hmm. So it's still, because that's obviously, I mean, like, I mean, like I say, I mean, how many fucking Baskervilles with black dog stories do you want to find? But, you know, they managed to sort of successfully cover them all and, um, create this thing but again it was that sort of tension where Conan Doyle was like right I need the I need a character who's going to explain why this has come about mm. and it's a, it's a strange thing you know where when he was quite happy to write fictions of you know he was quite prepared to write supernatural fiction mm. for want of a better expression but he was very determined that Hound of the Baskervilles would have a rational explanation, therefore he brings in the arch-rationalist. And it's interesting that Holmes never... The, he knew, in a weird way, never to do that with Holmes. Yeah. Because I, I suppose, weirdly, I mean, this is that point is it's almost like, well, if Holmes is right all the time, then 
it would be a very fundamental thing to have been wrong. Yeah. I suppose. I don't know. But, yeah. It's such a, I didn't realize it had such a massive backstory. So, Chris, considering, as you said, that you're not um, not as versed in Sherlock Holmes, how did you find this just as a, a Hammer film, sort of standalone? Um, yeah, I suppose it's interesting because of sort of the two elements being brought together. It, it, like, they seem to have done this really well for it being sort of the Hammer style, yet still... Mm getting across Sherlock Holmes effectively. And it's interesting, you know, that, that all those uh, actors can play the roles and it just works really well. Um, and I suppose that is, as we were saying, that Sherlock it has all the elements of supernatural horror, mm. even if the final explanation is a rational one. And, um, yeah, yeah, essentially. Um, uh, but yeah, and the main character is not, exactly the supernatural one it's homes but you know they play off each other so well so i you know it's it's very enjoyable to watch it, it they seem to have held up really well um yeah and uh, it had enough uh elements of you know it's it's, uh, it's quite tense at points but it's also quite entertaining there seemed to be quite a bit of drinking throughout, not just at the party, <laughs> you know. Like so, yeah, they had all the right characters in there. It was really good, and again, just great to see Peter Cushing. Um, so it's hard to, you know, not not enjoy it just for that alone. It's a funny role yeah. for Cushing because, as Adam said, you can see his love for the character because mm. he plays him so yeah. well. That kind of almost obnoxious kind of knows he's better than him but it's funny to see Peter Cushing do that because he normally plays such an amiable character he, to he, yeah him. well yeah he's aside from his own entertainment Random off Tarkin yeah well yeah well that's the thing that's the thing is he's either he's either he's either a bastard yeah or 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 he's lovely mm. but to actually see someone who's the hero being a bastard yeah <laughs> I mean that that bit where it's like enjoy your rabbit stew yeah. Go up and talk to your peasant friends. It's like, fuck me, mate. Yeah. <laughs> putting in punches. Um, Jennifer, so I, you're uh, obviously Jennifer, as well as a massive fan and has seen, you know, the same as me, a dozen different adaptations. But when you watched this yesterday, you said you didn't think you'd seen it. Before. I don't think I have. None of it was familiar. I mean, I mm. couldn't remember the ending, which is ridiculous considering how many times I have read it or watched <laughs> it in different versions. But I do find that a lot with, you know, Agatha Christie or yeah, any of these. I can never remember the ending. Yeah. So just before, then I'm like, oh, yes. But um, yeah, no, I don't think I've seen it before. So I was, I think, as you said at the start, you know, the, the start of this film is a bit like, oh, am I watching Sherlock Holmes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Harsh, what's going on? Um, and then it, yeah, fits in quite nicely to the usual sort of um, story. But as you say, with those hammer, you know, humorous bits, you know, the, mm. the bishop, oh, the, the sherry, bishop. And yeah, the, yeah, oh yeah, just hilarious. Like <laughs> he smashes the window with his uh, telescope. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, what's that that yeah. the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd totally forgotten about that character. <laughs> I think, in a weird way, I think I might have put him in my mind in like a comic adaption mm. <laughs> of a Sherlock Holmes or something like that. Because I mean, especially that bit, that bit with the, the window where nothing's said, yeah. but it's just fucking mad. <laughs> it's like, oh, yes, well, I've just made it open the windows. You know, and he's just, 
because uh, we the other thing as well is I think you've got a I think all the bit part because apart from Cushing Lee and Andre Morel, these aren't so, do you know what I mean? You haven't necessarily got a cast of well, I don't know. I suppose they are faces. Recognised John you know, John Le Measure. Um, yes. Now, yes. I hadn't actually seen him in anything, but I always remember him from the BBC radio um, oh, adaptation of Army. Lord of the Rings. You must have seen Dad's Army. Yes. I like, I mean, I didn't know he was in it. I didn't know that oh. was him. I, Dad's Army was on on occasion. I never particularly oh, watched it. No, fair enough. Took much yeah. notice. And obviously the narrator of Bod as well. Oh, he's, yes. got, he's got quite a lot of voice over stuff and... Uh, home pride flower um, but I have to say this: I'm very pleased that it's given me the opportunity to talk about John Lemessier because I just love he was such a lovely man again very much in the Peter Cushing end mm. of things where it's like someone who is an absolute gentleman mm. who you never hear anyone saying you know a bad word about them and just genuinely yeah I mean he was so um he was married three times. His second wife was Hattie Jakes, and oh. they had two sons together. Now, Hattie Jakes started having an affair with her driver, mm-hmm. and John Lemessier had just met a woman called Joan, who was going to become his third wife. Oh. But John Lemessier was basically like, well, shall I just go in the spare room? Because you've, you know, you're you two, obviously. And then, because of, because of he could mention Joan... He then took the role of the person at fault in the divorce settlement so that she wouldn't get the scandal attached to her. Oh, well, that's nice. Because obviously, I mean, it's I mean, like it's any fucking different now, but certainly at the time, much more, you know, very yeah, much. So. It's acceptable, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was like blokes, that's fine. Yeah, he went off and had an affair. A woman, it would have been she was shunned. That's yeah. it. Her reputation yeah. is through. No one wants to work with her and everything. So John like was like, no, I'll just look, I'll be the I'll be the one at the fault in the divorce so that she it wouldn't affect her career and stuff like that. And basically they mm. remained you know friends with Patty until she died. Um, you know, like they were sort of it was very amicable and they had two sons together. And there's a lovely interview with one of his sons. So who was saying like one of their sons where he was saying he was um, going off the rails a bit because he used to be in the music industry. Um, and he's like, you know, he said, I was doing a lot of naughty things. And um, my mum was worried. So she got John to come and see me. And apparently he just turned up and was like, well, I know you're not going to take any notice of me. You know, I'm going to take a fucking blind bit of notice of anything I say, will you? But, um, you know, just for your mum's sake, even if you don't stop, just make it look like you've stopped. <laughs> you know, just, just for her sake, just because otherwise, you know, she worries, bless her, and it's not going to. And then sort of like that, that chat, and then he went right. So, have you got a joint? <laughs> and, um, yeah, and uh, anyway, so I mean, and then he married Joan, um, and then about a few months into that marriage, Tony, Tony Hancock's own marriage had collapsed and he was mates with Tony Hancock. So he said to Tony Hancock, he could come and stay there. Tony Hancock ended up having an affair with fucking John. Oh, God. And, and but like, so she went off with Tony Hancock, realised that life with Tony Hancock was a fucking living nightmare because he was a par- paranoid, drunk, depressive at that point. 
Um, that seemed exciting. I, I, I love, on the first. I love Hancock, but I'm not, I wouldn't have wanted rang around with it. That's that's <laughs> another way of putting it, I suppose. But yeah, so she ended up going back to um, John, and he was like, again, it, there was no sort of like, well, welcome back. Yeah, it was. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but I mean, he was. Uh, where was it? Uh, when he died. Well, his last words were cred- are often said to be. It was all rather lovely, really, oh. uh, were apparently his last words. So I think he was just a very nice, gent- a, a, a gentle man, mm. as in gentleman. You know, I think he was just a very nice, calm, sort of easygoing guy. Mm. And um, his, uh, his, own, his, own, uh, at his own insistence, uh, Joan took out a notice, an obituary notice in the Times, which read, John Lemessier wishes it to be known that he conked out on the 15th of November. <laughs> he sadly misses his friends and family. Oh. Um, and this is one of my favourite stories about John Lemez, is that um, he won a Best Actor BAFTA in 1972 uh, for a straight role in a Play for Today episode called Traitor. Um, and after he won, he sat in the audience and lit up a massive fucking joint and the cameras had to keep cutting around him because every time they cut back, there's this thing with the joint waving. And, you know, and everyone was like, Princess Anne's in attendance. You can't be smoking a joint. And basically, the whole thing boiled down to, well, they can't throw him out. He's just one best actor. Yeah. So <laughs> but he was just, yeah. I mean, and, and obviously, just like in so many, you know, so many comedy things, not just like that Dad's Army, but he was in like loads of. Hancock stuff, ripping yarns, and yeah, Spaceman and King Arthur, and Love Wrong Eye of the Law, and so Pink Panther, and he, it's weird to see him as a butler because he's usually either medics or judges. Yes. They seem to be his kind of the roles that he tended to get. Uh, he, apparently, also, and I didn't know this. Apparently, um, originally, him and Arthur Lowe were meant to play the opposite character in Dad's Army. And John LeMessier is still like, and imagine what a fucking disaster that would have been. And it's like, yeah, because I can't see that. I can't see it that way around with him as the uptight, mm. like sort of pompous. You know, he just does the sort of, oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the vagueness so wonderfully. Um, and um, yeah, but it's so, yeah, you've got, you've got him in there, you've got um, Miles. Um, what is it, Miles Mallison? Yeah. Miles Mallison, yeah, yeah. Miles Mallison, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, who's the bishop, who's obviously a series mm. of comedy weird little men in loads of Hammer stuff and non-Hammer stuff. That just yeah. seems to be his, <laughs> the stuff he does. But um, the guy who plays Dr. Mortimer, I really like him yeah. because I think he gives off quite a, well, you've done it, mm. feeling at various yeah. points. But not to the point of like cackling villain mm. to throw you off the scent or anything yeah. else like that. He's just like obtuse and bad in certain points where you're like, so is he just a dick or yeah. Yeah. like like when he like like when he's like when he's being a prick to the coachman. He's like, yeah, you speak me, you spoke to him. He's like, well, I didn't mean anything, but I just thought you're just gonna get your head stowed in by an escape convict, you fat prick. But <laughs> Mm-hmm. It, there's a few bits in this that I'd not noticed before that actually made me laugh. So at, at the end, not mm. to jump to the end, 
Um, but the fact that they're all there, the hound comes out and Sherlock Holmes basically says to Watson, hang on, wait a minute, and lets it attack Henry first and then goes, oh, I can't get a clean shot now. And it's like, why didn't you shoot it when it was coming? You let it attack him with a kind of, oh, now look what's happened. No, look what you've let yeah. happen. I think it's more of a... Um, I have to say, I think I think Andre Morel's a good Watson. Yeah, very good. I think he's he's the right level of just sort of stalwart chap. Mm. You know, he's again. It's that that has become such a cliche that everyone's like, oh, when when this character when this person played Watson, they were changing the role forever from the buffoonery. And it's like, I think that's just genuinely Nigel Bruce in the Basil <laughs> Rathbone one is the yeah. only Watson who is a complete and utter plump. <laughs> you know, he's the he's the only one who they've had who they've made him. Well, I mean, we might come to Sherlock a bit later uh, at a later point. But Is it, I think <laughs> the one I've seen, it's the first um, time where it feels like no, we've had to write him thick so that Sherlock looks good. Yeah. <laughs> Was it Martin Freeman played him? Martin Freeman's Watson in in yeah. Sherlock. Yeah, so I've, I've definitely but, seen one of those. Hmm. Yes, um, yeah. and okay, well, he's fairly straight. He, I mean, again, I think this is something that is a lot of people tend to miss. And I think Sherlock, certainly in its initial run, like first couple of series, really got it right. Jeremy Brett's characterization got it really right. Is half the enjoyment is the fun of them two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, Holmes basically mildly winding up or mm. outraging or winding up Watson. Yeah. is part of the joy yeah. of the stories and part of the joy of their friendship and stuff. Mm. And, <laughs> and I mean, even even down to that, I, would, I noticed the... Because, um, uh, again, and I'm, I remember when I first read Hand of the Baskervilles, I was very disappointed by that, by the fact that Holmes disappears for a time being. Mm. And, again, I don't know whether that was because Conan Doyle was almost like, I'm writing this prick again. I'm going to have to take a break. <laughs> now we're going to have to do two chapters with just Watson. I can't fucking stand the man, even though I created it myself. And um, hmm. yeah, I think the um, that it's interesting because obviously you've got Christopher Lee in there. Mm. Now Christopher Lee, under normal circumstances, is who you would cast as Holmes. Yeah, just I'm- because. Usually, Holmes is the tallest and most authoritarian person in the room. And so just, I, I don't, I can't imagine that working as well. Even I though you're right well. on paper, think, you might have expected. Yeah, but I think nowadays, I think certainly from a visual level, mm. Holmes is always a towering figure, mm. or yeah. certainly, you know, he's always because in this, him and Watson are practically the same height. Mm. Um, but usually, I think Holmes is usually sort of taller or slighter or that there's a much more visually distinct difference that you would get if you had Andre Morel as Watson with Pete, uh, with Christopher Lee as Holmes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think it's interesting because you've got essentially Sir Henry takes on the leading man role. Mm. And so Christopher Lee playing the characters right, especially when it gets to that point where it's him and Watson, and it's like, what well, I can see a light on the Watson bring you, you know, he's almost taking Holmes's charge. Yeah. In Holmes's absence. 
Although also, I think it's a very interesting thing to see Peter, uh, to, to see Christopher Lee play a scared person or a vulnerable person. Yeah, mm. yeah. You know, that is odd. I I the, the scene with the tarantula, it's unusual. Mm. I think mm. it's unusual to see him acting genuinely scared. scared yeah. And you were quite shocked by yeah. it. Yeah, it's... I, I was mainly scared myself. Mm. Tarantula, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the other scene is when he gets slapped at the end and he, he gets knocked backwards almost mm, and it's yes. like oh does he get slapped in anything else mm-hmm. i can't imagine that happening very often is that when he gets slapped by i can imagine it's like possibly hmm. i think i think to be honest i think it's a bit like johnny that the film Johnny Dangerously. Yeah, someone slapped me once. <laughs> once. <laughs> yes, no, it is Cecile. Yes, it is. Who again is a, a, a plays such an obnoxious character, and she's got a great line where she says, mm. "When you're poor, nobody wants to know you." And it's like, no, it's because you're a shit house of a person. I think is the reason that nobody <laughs> wants to know you. She's so horrible. In this. Well, is the weird thing is though is that this version makes more sense. Where she is resentful, the villain. Mm. You know, she she is technically the villain, and her dad is her accomplice. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Rather rather than where because in because in the book they're the Staplesons are supposedly brother and sister. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't they? Yeah. And then it turns out that actually they're husband and wife. Yeah. And then she doesn't want to play ball, so she becomes an imperiled heroine essentially mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. in in the book um but in this version it's like no she's evil but that makes a lot more sense of her falling for sir henry rather than just oh he's good looking isn't he yeah. <laughs> you know, which, which seems to which in the conan doyle version feels a lot more flippant mm-hmm. you know rather than sort of like someone where it's like at least you get the idea all oh, right so she's she's on the mate she's a gold digger yeah you know or she's you know and also, I just love the very hammer touch of uh, right. Are we going to do the bit where you where he holds his hands over the painting and you can see that it's his face? And it's like, nah, nah. We're going to give him a webbed hand. Yeah, <laughs> we're giving him a webbed hand. <laughs> and he's got a bit so if he's got Go a webbed hand, it does explain one thing. It's the one thing I always think of. You know, when you think of a film and it's one specific scene, the bit I yeah. always get is the bit with Hugo Baskerville when he's holding the girl down and he does what I've written down in my notes as the campest stabbing ever. Like, yeah, he quite so. Yeah, ooh, like he holds her down yeah. with one hand and then kind of very in a very camp motion pulls that hand up before he stabs him. But, uh, stabs her, but he doesn't look like he wants. Like it's a very, it's a very strange, and it's the, the bit I yeah. always have in my mind is that very unusual movement when he stabs her. It's, but... it's a bit like, oh, I nearly touched your boob. Exactly. <laughs> which, uh, which, at which point, I'm assuming that Sir Hugo was not that concerned about. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I, because, um, and. Yeah, so it was going to be Hammer will I I will do more. And then it just was a box office mm. failure, so they mm. didn't, which was a shame. But um 
Peter Cushing then did play Sherlock Holmes on the BBC. They did like a series of it. And it was him and Nigel Stock as Watson. And I think that's like sort of late 60s, about 68, I think. And they they did like a series. And actually, they did The Hound of the Baskervilles in that as well. Um, so there's like a two-part TV version with Peter Cushing also playing mm. uh, playing Holmes. Is that any good? Um, and, again, and again, I think that was the same thing where he brought a lot of attention to detail to the series and was sort of suggesting dialogue and... Mm. Mm so on and so forth, he really sort of, you know, he that was his thing. I think he really, in, he enjoyed Sherlock Holmes, he enjoyed playing Holmes, and I think it was just a shame that obviously the, we didn't get more from the Hammer ones. But then I don't know, like you say, I don't know quite how they would have, I don't know quite how they'd have topped this. No, no. Because you, it's, it's like you've gone for broke in terms of like, right, this is the most horror home story and then after that mm. anything is kind of like yeah they're not so they're not quite as uh well actually i suppose there's only four homes novels really the mm. rest of our short stories so they probably would have been putting in a lot of padding and unusual sort of stuff that again it might have been much the way that christopher lee lost interest in playing dracula mm. it might have been the same with peter cushing where it's like well you're not you know we're straying from the original here, we're straying from Conan Doyle. So but now but, <coughs> made an amazing anthology if they'd done another movie and they'd put three stories together mm. or something with a nice wrap around that. Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. Quick, it's yeah. a shame no one's <laughs> an antho- an anthology homes movie would be a great idea because mm. yeah, they would it would suit that so much more so than trying to like because I mean, even even with with the best will in the world, like a lot of the TV adaptations, some of the stories are so slight mm. that you're like, if they want to spin this out, to I mean, Sherlock obviously, like the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock, it's a different thing because they were trying to actively rewrite and subvert people's um, knowledge of it and things like that. Uh, that's interesting. Um, but I think that the yeah, I think that sort of when you're trying to do it straight, you, a lot of these stories don't necessarily even add up to like an hour's television. Mm, yeah. You know, so you start doing films out of them, it really sort of probably would start to pull. I don't know. Yeah. Especially now. But I mean, the. Um, hours for a film. Sorry? Yeah. Especially, you know, nowadays, yeah. you can't have a film that's under two and a half hours. So they would struggle. Yeah. Christopher Lee did play Sherlock Holmes a couple of times, though, um, in a German TV film called Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace. And then two ones, two TV movies in the 90s, Sherlock Holmes and the Leading Lady and Sherlock Holmes Incident at Victoria Falls. Mm-hmm. Um, he also plays Mycroft in The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which is yeah. fucking brilliant and genuinely one of the best... Certainly, one of the best non-Conan Doyle adaptions of uh, like Sherlock Holmes things that I've ever seen. It's you know so so good. It's um, very and, yeah, down, isn't it? It's it's kind of mm. it, it's got it's, it's got a lot more drama in it, not just in the story, but actually about Sherlock. Like you see his dark side a lot more, and him struggling mm. a lot more than you do in a lot of the adaptations, as you say, where they generally keep him a lot lighter. 
Um, yeah. yeah, that is. A, yeah, it's much more. It's much more him as a personality is as much a part of it uh, as the case that's being solved. Yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, Lee uh, Christopher Lee as Mycroft in that is essentially where the Benedict Cumberbatch version comes from. Of because yeah. he's basically the he's basically MI five. He's basically like the Secret Service. Yeah, and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, is, is it really is it Mark Gatiss who plays then Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah, is he? Because uh, I think yeah, that was the first Gates. time I saw him in anything. Oh really? Oh, Must right. have been. Yeah. He does play that fantastically well. Yeah. I like, I like yeah. Gatiss's writing and everything. Obviously, I've mm. talked about him before, but his acting in that and like he mm. he does just portray that character fantastically. It's. And that's probably I could what? imagine Christopher Lee playing it. You know, perhaps similar to that, whether he does or not. I could imagine. Christopher Christopher Lee plays it without even the merest hint that you could get a laugh out of him. Yes. <laughs> like he just plays he plays it properly. Like my brother is a pain in the ass, <laughs> and frankly, if I didn't have to use him, I would have him shot. <laughs> he really he is. For want of a better expression, sick of Sherlock's bullshit. <laughs> so, <laughs> Because even even down to that, that's a lovely it's a lovely thing that Conan Doyle did, where it's like, so you've got Sherlock Holmes, right? You must be utterly unique. And it's like, oh no, my brother's smarter than me. Yeah, <laughs> and then you meet the you meet the brother, and he is, but he's you know far so, less like... <laughs> far less human than yeah. Holmes is, and it's like fucking hell, you know, you thought you thought Holmes was a fucking <laughs> was a fucking crank. You haven't met Mycroft yet. Um, but also, Mycroft doesn't seem to have any of the sort of um, what's the word for it? Doesn't seem to have the much, as much troubling morality mm. as Holmes does. Where it's like you know, sort of like, well, I'm going to ch- like that, th- like the thing of well, I chant my rates remain the same whoever I'm working for unless I decide to waive them uh, completely. Where it's like, yeah, I don't think Mycroft's mm. ever <laughs> he's never, he's never given away a free lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, certainly not in most versions of it, <laughs> but I think the uh, and obviously they you don't see much dog. To be honest, I think they do. They sort of follow the jaws thing of probably realizing that the dog's not going to be great, mm-hmm. so they stick to a lot of good howling. And actually, I do like the way everyone reacts. Mm. Like everyone reacts kind of well in that sort of sense of like everyone's kind of well what no what is that yeah do you know what I mean it's like it's like scared and curious mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah and I think that um, and again it's it's sort of nice to see that this version of it pretty much sticks. Uh, pretty closely to the to the story in many ways. I mean, they've sort of changed the ending slightly, but then even down to that, it's kind of um, probably a good thing for the people who knew the story mm. that you see this other version of it. Because otherwise, you know, you sort of, you, you, you're like, well, I might as well have read the fucking thing. I don't know. But um, interestingly, this is the this is the first film version in color. So it was the first time that Holmes was in in glorious Technicolor. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, and this was something I hadn't realised, um, it's the first 
time that it's done as a period piece. Be okay. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you call Claire uh, yeah. the word period there, uh, but that reader is why I married her. Um, but uh, yeah, the um, it's because I think it's the first time when you'd got to a point where Holmes actually is of a different era. Mm. So a lot of the adaptions, because I mean, Conan Doyle was writing the stories up until about nineteen. 1913, 1914, I think. You know, he was pretty much just up to the eve of the First World War, he was writing Sherlock Holmes. Hmm. So a lot of the film adaptions are contemporary because at that point, Sherlock Holmes was kind of contemporary. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't as... Whereas this is the first time that they'd actually gone, right, so we'll set it in the Victorian era hmm. rather than, you know, oh, it's present day. Yeah. yeah, much in the same way as all the Stephen King adaptions now. It's like, well, anything that's set in the fifties, we'll do it in the eighties. Yeah. yeah, and but up until, for, but for a while they just didn't bother. But now it's so much time has passed that it's like, right, that's going to be weird if someone's having a flashback to the fifties. Mm. Um, you know, who's the young character in this or whatever? So um, yeah, so this is the first sort of period version of it as well, which is an interesting, again, something I hadn't realised. I think it was like Kim Newman mentioned it. Um, on like one of the extras or something, but um, yeah, it was like, oh yeah, shit, this is <laughs> thinking about it because like the because that's the thing you've got like the the Basil Basil Rathbone, uh, Nigel Bruce Sherlock Holmes series, hmm. but they are all contemporary because they were like sort of nineteen twenties or whatever like that, so they weren't actually that far removed from Holmes. So they just accepted that. So there were certain things in there that weren't in the stories, like, say, um, modern telephones or something like that, you know, is sort of much more. But that was just seen as, oh, yeah, well, that's what we'd have now, rather mm. than, oh, yeah, let's go back and look at this from a, I suppose it's a bit more difficult at that point as well. When you're like sort of only 15 years out of something, it's like, We've got to make this period piece. Can you remember whether we had them then? No, probably not. Like <laughs> mobile phones in horror films now, isn't it? Well, yeah. you're like, at what point do they need to get some sort of plot where, oh, the mobile phone has disappeared, otherwise it's not going to work because they'll just phone yeah. up the police and it'll be fixed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we mentioned that before, like battery running out, making a yeah. point of, we've, we've got plenty of batteries. Well, what was it? It was um, Blair Witch, wasn't it? Oh, Blair Witch. Yeah. Being, yeah. yeah. What happens when batteries are so good on mobile phones? I yeah, like that they just last for. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've lost my battery. Oh, it's broken. It's yeah, it'll yeah. get hard. See, I, th I think, I think there's something to be said. They could make a comment on what a bunch of tight asses Apple are by having a found footage fu uh, film shot on an iPhone, but one that's plugged in, so you can only move it fucking three inches because <laughs> that's the only bit of fucking cable they give you. The cunts. So. <laughs> What the, use is that? I think the other thing I love about Sherlock Holmes is how much it's led to like an expanded universe. So, mm. like obviously after the the Conan Doyle books, so many other people. So I went through a phase at the beginning of lockdown. I read all of the George Mann, the guy who does all the like the yes. cyberpunk books, wrote all the Sherlock Holmes, and they are exceptional. Um, yeah, and that then led me into reading the Warlock Holmes. But I'll read the first one. I am going to read the others. Have you heard of Adam? I don't think I have, actually, no. 
Um, Jennifer is showing it to the camera now. Um, so basically, it's the stories of Sherlock Holmes, but the idea is that he is actually a warlock and the police are after <laughs> him. So he's having to help Scotland Yard because if he doesn't, they're going to lock him up for all of his uh, crimes against humanity. But it's quite um, clever putting oh, wow. the natural mm. almost back into it then, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. Doyle didn't do any of that, yet this author has kind of managed yeah. to mix the two together and really Lestrade well. is mm. Transylvanian, he's actually a vampire, um, <laughs> and his henchman is like a golem type thing. Like, they're really, mm. really funny, but they've taken the original stories and given them this whole twist, and they're really entertaining. So, again, it's another one that's... Like once you get to the end of Sherlock Holmes, as you were saying, Adam, you know, where people were like, mm. oh, no, you know, if you've killed him off, that's the end. And everyone was hankering for more. Like there's yeah. been a resurgence in the last 20 years of people saying, well, actually, in a kind of HP Lovecraft type way, we can take that character and do so much with it. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Incredible stuff. But they, same way they do with Agatha Christie, they allow authors to use yeah. the story. So mm. this one. Um, mm. This is uh, Anthony Horowitz, um, who writes Midsummer Murder Story. Oh, yes. Oh, there you go. But, yeah, so here's one. You know, the House of Silk is kind of, you know, yes. allowed from the Conan Doyle estates to, to write sort of new versions, if you like. To be, a, to be a official Sherlock yeah. Holmes, yeah. Mm. Which is, you know, yeah, why the, not? Yeah. Well, they they did a similar thing with um, James Bond, because obviously Ian Fleming wrote the originally wrote the James Bond books and so there are official and unofficial uh, sort of takes on that as well i know there's a lot of good there's a lot of good homes crossover stuff um because there's like homes and lovecraft ones mm. um, oh yeah we've got a study in emerald haven't we which yeah. is like which is an um mm. a graphic novel but yeah is uh it homes basically fighting a I, I don't remember want, now. I yeah. do, but I don't want to give away because I can't remember if it's a twist. But yeah, yeah. it's very HP Lovecraft once it all gets into mm. it. I'm quite I'm quite intrigued as well, as I know that there is a I think there's a collection of um people have done Sherlock Holmes and the Hellraiser <laughs> universe. Wow. Didn't know that. Which yeah. Again, again, you know, I think there's a, I think the good, because I mean, the good thing is, I mean, it basically is as soon as you're out of copyright. You do what you like. <laughs> you're free, yeah. you know, it, you can go to town. Because actually, I mean, this is the weird thing. When they did the Jeremy Brett adaptions, they started in 1983 uh, because that was the first time that Sherlock Holmes had become public domain because it's like 100 years. Oh. So the first public works were 1883. And so they sort of started adapting from that position because up until that point, the Sherlock Holmes estate and Conan Doyle's estate had never let ITV do it, oh. which is ironic when you consider consider how well the yeah. Granada series is. Oh. But, yeah, they wouldn't let ITV do it because they were a bit sort of, well, it's ITV, you know, they're not going to do it properly, are they? Probably <laughs> going to put a page three bird in there and vote Labour. <laughs> And then it ends up being, it, 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 to a lot of us, myself and Adam, I believe, included the definitive version mm. of, uh, of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, <laughs> without a shadow of a doubt. And this is something, obviously, we'll come back to um, on our yeah. subsequent episode. I was going to ask, but yeah. I think yeah so, be so, Adam, so if we're going to start wrapping up, would you like to tell people what we're going to cover on our next episode? 
Our next episode is going to be a bit of a free-for-all in a way, or it's certainly three, uh, the number. Um, so we're going to look at three additional versions of The Hound of the Baskervilles. There will be the original... Uh, fucking original, Jesus. <laughs> what original? The fuck, this fucking book, you twat. Anyway, right. And scene. Um, so... <laughs> Um, yeah, so we're going to look at three versions. We're going to look at the uh, Jeremy Brett version that was on uh, ITV in England, which is like a TV movie version as part of the return of Sherlock Holmes um, uh, series, which was 1988. Uh, we're going to look at Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's version from 1978, <laughs> which surprisingly follows the plot quite a lot <laughs> despite not following a lot of it no. <laughs> uh, at all and also uh, the hounds of baskerville the sherlock adaption of it which was to my memory you know that'll be the it'll be the first time i've watched it in a long time and to my memory they did a very good job of it and they also made a very good job again, of that thing of being, right, people know Sherlock Holmes, so we've got to do this. Differently. We've got to do this both mm. faithfully, but in such a way that it's new to people. Yeah. Properly. Which is what Gatiss is fantastic at, exactly the same as he did with Dracula, but I'm sure we're no. that. Wait, did, so did he actually write that as well then? Is that, I didn't... It, it's him and Stephen Moffat. Um, oh, okay. Together and basically, it's also slightly the reason why Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who went a bit weird. Because oh, at one point, I th- well, I think I think it was just that usual case of stretching yourself too mm, thin. Yeah. So he was doing he was doing Sherlock, he was doing Doctor Who, and then it I believe like a bit up, much to take on. Well, a bit much else? to take on, and then at one point, I think his mother died. Yeah, like midway through <laughs> that, that adds to it. Series three of Sherlock and series. I don't know, eight or nine of Doctor Who. Um, or was it? Yeah, like, but yeah, basically. So I think there was a, a lot of fallout mm. in that sort of sense. And, and also, I do suspect that's why Mark Gatiss wasn't naturally selected as the person to take over from Stephen Moffat doing Doctor Who. Is mm. I, think, I think Mark Gatiss just sat there and just went, well, fuck that for a game of soldiers. I've just seen what you've done for the past two years of like nearly yeah. <laughs> burning yourself out completely excellent right so mm. um thanks ever so much for listening everybody uh hope you enjoyed that hope you definitely go and check it out if you haven't seen it before the hammer version check out the other versions we'll be covering uh and yeah we will see you in fortnight's time thanks very much for listening good night good night good night I don't know whether to thank you for being a guest or not. You sort of said <coughs> guest. I don't mind. You don't have to. It's oh, fine. Thanks anyway. <laughs>